Uh, when uh, Thomas Levergood asked me, in fact, decided for me uh, that I should address the question of is there a Christian philosophy, uh, I was not strong enough to say, to deny, and to, uh, or to, uh, to say anything, I say yes. And uh, it was not very wise. <laughs> It was not very wise because uh, I discovered that uh, you expected, you expect from me uh, a, a real answer to this question. And in fact, uh, my uh, ambition this evening would be, first of all, to understand the question and possibly to deconstruct it at least slightly to understand what exactly is the meaning, uh, the hidden signification of this uh, question. Is there a Christian philosophy at all? Because uh, it makes no sense to give an answer to a question which is not clearly understood. In that case, uh, the answer remains uh, at best uh, a bit rhetorical. So let us uh, make some distinction about the question to understand the question, the range of the question and all the possible uh, 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 understanding of this question. To do so, uh, I would like to uh, consider three uh, points. First, to make some distinctions. Second, to uh, uh, explain some historical paradox of the question itself. And then to uh, try to explain why there is no simple answer to the question, is there uh, uh, Christian philosophy. This question was, uh, in fact, this is uh, interesting, it was the first, the first year I came to the University of Chicago, I was invited, along with David Tracy, to a conference in Washington DC, Georgetown University, precisely devoted to the question of the actuality of Christian philosophy. And we went there with uh, Adrian Peperzak, among other Chicagoans, to discuss the issue. It was in 1930, something like that, or 40. And uh, this text was published uh, in a, a, a collection of essays under the title The Visible and the Revealed. To some extent, I have nothing to add to that <laughs> first <coughs> uh, 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 discussion of uh, the question, is there a Christian theology? But after more than uh, something, uh, so, 15 or many years, what I would like to do now is to uh, make some first, some distinction. Because the question about Christian philosophy implies, I think, uh, that we may distinguish between at least three possible uh, characters in the play. 
The first character is religious studies. The second character is theology, and the third is philosophy. What do we mean uh, when we uh, uh, consider those three possible positions about the same question? Let us say the question of Christian revelation without further uh, explanation in details. Those three uh, attitudes uh, refer to the same uh, field for research and interpretation, but not the same way. Let us consider first religious studies or sciences of religion, which are a part and a large part of, for instance, of the Divinity School, the University of Chicago. What are the rules from that point of view? Uh, a year ago, our colleague Guy Strumza and a dear friend of mine uh, was during years uh, um, teaching at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and now teaches in Oxford, uh, explained us uh, first floor, uh, I remember well, <coughs> that according to the methodology of religious studies, uh, we should take a special attitude towards all the traditions we can study. We should consider each of them as if it were completely true and um, our creed with an exception, your own religion, which should be studied as if it was completely false and not your creed. That's uh, the, the way, uh, uh, the epistemology, the right way and the epistemology of registered studies. I mean <coughs> that in religious studies, we consider an object or any other object as if the question of my commitment to uh, his message could be bracket. It is a point of view uh, it is a point of view of the transcendental ego as uh, 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 studying any other subject with the neutral assumption that I shall study it as if it was completely true. The way according to which, say, uh, Lévi-Strauss used to rehabilitate the uh, lo inner logic of any uh, possible society, even those which were supposed to be uh, primitive or inferior, which, after being studied by Lévi-Strauss, proved to be as sophisticated, rational, their way, than our own sociology. In that case, the uh, social, the science of religion, or religious studies, uh, take a very clear position against theology, Against theology, because theology implies the commitment of the interpret 
to the object of interpretation, as well as to uh, philosophy, because the mere study of the language, the uh, rituals, and uh, the uh, organization of the narrative uh, requires no speculative interpretation and perhaps forbid any speculative interpretation. So, <clears throat> this is the first position. The second position is that of theology. In theology, uh, I would say we have a reverse position where the condition of possibility uh, to uh, uh, study uh, what is at stake is precisely the commitment to the truth of what is at stake. What is at stake in a Christian view is the self-manifestation of God. And the self-manifestation of God cannot be studied without the assumption that indeed there is de facto such a manifestation and a manifestation of God from the point of view of God. It's why in a controversial uh, uh, position I, I, I argued in God Without Being that there is a special connection between uh, theology and the Eucharistic moment. The Eucharistic moment being uh, the assumption of the actual self-manifestation of God within the liturgical act in the middle of the community of the uh, believers. And more than that, uh, I assume that without a connection with the operator of, uh, uh, in Persona Christi, of, uh, the, uh, of the Eucharist, there is no uh, place, correct place, for the theologian. <clears throat> in that case, it is very clear that theology cannot be neutral. Not because there is a bias, but because there is a presupposition that a theologian has to describe not something he takes as his own uh, opinion, but he has to describe what is actually going on in front of him. So he's describing the mystery as enacted by the, the, the community of the believers, by the church, under the uh, persona Christi, uh, that is uh, the priest or the, uh, the bishop. In that case, uh, theology uh, has a very strong uh, 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 position against uh, religious studies, because the epistemological presupposition is exactly the reverse. No neutrality, because if you are not directly uh, 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 experiencing uh, the mystery, you have just nothing to see. Indeed, nothing to say, but first nothing to see. And at the same moment, uh, the uh, philosophical point of view cannot be admitted in theology. 
by anticipation, I would say that the philosophical point of view assumes some a priori determination of the experience, whatever that experience may be. The religious experience, in the case of Christian revelation, the experience of the presence of God in Eucharist, making no exception. So, <clears throat> from the beginning, theology was very reluctant to accept any uh, philosophical predetermination of the Christian experience, that is, of the liturgical, eucharistical experience. And that uh, is clearly expressed in, uh, by Paul in the epistle to the Colossians 2.8, uh, don't let you be, uh, uh, be uh, uh, deceived diates uh, philosophias by the philosophy and by the uh, empty uh, illusion according to the tradition of man and to the principle of the world. The stoikeia to cosmu and the paradoxis which are in fact philosophy, uh, cannot uh, preclude and precede uh, the self-manifestation of God, which has to appear without precondition, unconditionally. That is to say, in the situation of theology, uh, we uh, experience the truth of the relation between Aaron and Moses. Uh, Moses has nothing to say to the people but what God told him to say. But even this uh, 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 strange connection is too much uh, a burden for Moses because he cannot speak out. So he has to be uh, uh, spoken out, so to speak, by Aaron. So Aaron does not know what Moses means. But Aaron can speak out. Moses cannot. But Moses, knowing what he has to speak out, don't, to some extent, don't fully understand what he says. And so, uh, they all are submitted uh, in not only in what they say, but the way they say, the role they play in the uttering the, the kerigma. They are completely uh, on, uh, uh, on uh, 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 non-independence toward what is going on. And that's why when Aaron says something, it is in fact God himself which is speaking. It's not Aaron, it is indeed not Moses, it is God himself. This connection is typical of theology. So now, oh my gosh, my lecture is vanishing away. <laughs> uh, The water in the Bible is always death and destruction. It is true. 
Now, the third uh, uh, situation is that of philosophy. And <clears throat> about philosophy, we should keep in mind uh, the uh, very strong uh, statement made by Heidegger in many places, but I, I quote only Grundprobleme uh, der Phenomenologie, Gesamtausgabe 24, page 28. The concept of a Catholic philosophy is as contradictory and inconsistent as that of a Protestant ma ma mathematics. And <laughs> I don't know how far Protestant mathematics is inconsistent. I would not. Uh, <laughs> but this formulation was in fact uh, uh, already the position of a, a very strong uh, neo-Thomist of the school of Leuven in Belgium at the beginning of uh, 19th century. Uh, <coughs> De Wolf in uh, 1904 said exactly the same thing. According to the usual meaning of its formulation, there is no Catholic philosophy, no more than there is any Catholic science. So this is also a Christian position. And it is very, very interesting to see how many uh, Christian thinkers agree with uh, the uh, strong declaration of Heidegger. So why is there no Christian or Catholic philosophy according to Heidegger and the school of Leuven and, by the way, Blondel and many others? It is not because uh, some are more atheists than others. It is because philosophy as such, at least according to the modern understanding of, of philosophy, philosophy as such has to be atheist. I mean by atheist, not the fact that philosophy is supposed to deny, say, the existence of God. Even when philosophy admits or demonstrates the existence of God, there is a kind of atheism implied behind. Why? Because in any philosophical uh, uh, demonstration, The demonstration itself assumes some a priori, some principle. It's because there are some principles, say the principle of sufficient reason, the principles of identity, or the principle that there is no existence without an essence, that there is no essence without a definition, perfection, and properties, and things like that, that we can possibly, in certain cases, demonstrate the existence of God. In that situation, the existence of God is established on the basis of an a priori principle. And this a priori principle is according to uh, the order of reasons, to speak like Descartes. Pr this principle comes before an earlier God. That is, there is an epistemological priority of the principle even over the ontical priority 
which come after the demonstration. Even if the demonstration of God leads to the, priori the ontical priority of God, this ontical priority is submitted, in fact, to an epistemological priority which comes according to the, uh, uh, the track of the demonstration, which comes before establishing the existence of God. And it is in that sense that there is a strong asceticism in philosophy. Not because philosophy or philosopher should be atheist, but because philosophy, if any, as a metaphysics, relies on the a priori. We know in advance and before any demonstration that anything, any phenomenon, any object should yield to some principles. And the first principle that is that anything which is known should be, for instance, or that anything which is should be an object, and that any object and so on can be measured according to a model, anything like that. So, in that case, phenomena, uh, philosophy cannot be uh, understood without assuming the condition of possibility of the experience. So the philosopher, as such, has to impose to uh, any possible object the priority of the a priori, which is, after all, a pleonasm. That is to, in, and to that extent, the philosopher claim to have a priority against uh, religious sciences, which are considered as empirical sciences, without any uh, structural principle, and against uh, theology, which at best can be admitted as a positive science as any other. Each, other sci each science has a positum, that is a, a, a special field where the empirical data can be gathered and organized by that science. So there is no universal science, there are posita and positive sciences. So we, you, we study economics, uh, chemistry, physics, uh, nuclear physics, and so on. And the same way, philosophy may consider theology as a special kind of positive, of a positive science. That is the science depending on revelation, that is in fact on a collection of texts. And if you assume that you study that collection of texts, you study the positum of Christian, of Christian theology. So it is with this very, uh, I think, uh, very simple but very uh, 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 decisive distinction that we should start when we want to consider whether there is a Christian philosophy or not. The Christian philosophy should be something which is neither theology 
nor philosophy as such. Is that an applied philo uh, philosophy applied to a special positum, that of revelation? We, we cannot assume this as obviously uh, correct, because in that case, what is the, the relation between theology and Christian philosophy? What is the distinction? If you assume too easily that there is a Christian philosophy, uh, a conflict of border may uh, uh, arise with the theology, with theology. In the same uh, way of asking the question, if you admit the Christian philosophy, what last authority should be uh, uh, admitted there? Is this the a priori of philosophy or the Eucharistic event and the connection of the theologian to the Eucharistic event? It is exactly, definitely not the same uh, presupposition. And third question, if there is a Christian philosophy is that philosophy applied to a special empirical field borrowed from the field of religious studies? In that case, what is the last authority again? Is it that of the uh, methodology of the anthropology, so to speak? or that of the uh, Eucharistic uh, en uh, uh, achieve, uh, enforcement of self-manifestation of God. So, <clears throat> with that background, the question of Christian philosophy appears more uh, difficult than it could at first sight uh, appear. Uh, and uh, even from the, if you ask the question from the point of view of the, uh, the committed, serious, and I would say pious believer, it is not obvious that it is better to have a Christian philosophy than to have no Christian philosophy. So let us keep in mind those uh, distinctions. And now, uh, I would like to uh, to list some uh, historical paradox, paradoxes. I mean, some ways in the history of uh, thought, of Christian thought in particular, uh, some ways to understand and to make an attempt to achieve a Christian philosophy. The first case, to some extent, the most well-known, is the case of uh, the uh, last uh, uh, great debate about Christian philosophy, uh, which happened in Paris in 1930-31 and following years, when a great French historian of philosophy, 
Brillé uh, gave a lecture at the uh, uh, <coughs> um, uh, Société Française de Philosophie explaining that there is nothing like a Christian philosophy because uh, when the Christians start to be interested in philosophy, was referring to Greek philosophy, Neoplatonism, he was a, a scholar in Neoplatonism, that when they, they, were, they were interested in Neoplatonism, it was only to uh, borrow from a self-sustaining and consistent philosophy, pagan philosophy, <coughs> some arguments uh, to uh, support their own Uh, uh, polemical and apologetical uh, uh, concerns uh, in theology among Christians or supporting the Christian position among pagans or other uh, uh, traditions. And he said that uh, they had only an instrumental interest in philosophy but no real commitment to philosophy, because philosophy was not speaking about the Christian God and was speaking about other issues. Uh, there was a huge uh, discussion about that and most of the Christian uh, Catholic interlocutors of Breillet to some extent agreed with Breillet. I quoted uh, De Wolf and the Leuven uh, school of Neotomism, but uh, Blondel and many others, uh, including Maritain, agreed that there is no such a thing as a Christian philosophy. There is philosophy and the Christians. With an exception, which was uh, Etienne Gilson, who uh, uh, gave a famous, if completely strong and clear, a definition of Christian philosophy. A Christian philosophy, that is any philosophy which, although distinguishing formally between the orders of faith and reason, considers a revelation, Christian revelation, as the unavoidable auxiliary of reason. What does that mean, the unavoidable auxiliary of reason? That means that there are questions which cannot be asked by uh, mere natural philosophy, which can be discussed in philosophical terms, but which shall, which will, should be borrowed from Christian revelation. First example given by uh, Gilson, convincing. Good example, the question of creation. Creation is not a philosophical category. There is no creation for the Greeks before Christianity, but for uh, contemporary science as well. It's why the discussion about creation I'm sorry to be a bit polemical, but allow the old Europe to be time to time. <coughs> There is no, uh, uh, no reason to make a, a point with uh, creationism and evolution. Because evolution has nothing in common with creation. <coughs> creation is out of history, is out of nature by definition. So creationism is in no way uh, about creation, as evolution is not. 
The question whether the process of uh, building the world we know has taken a long process or a short process, all this is within creation already achieved. So the creation as such is not a part of our history. So the process of the development of our world has nothing to do with the question of creation. Creation is when the world was not, and that when itself is not in time. So uh, the question of creation is not a, philosoph a philosophical question. But you can ask the question of creation, and you can try to express that question using philosophical uh, uh, concepts. For instance, uh, uh, the, the infinite power, uh, causality, and things like that. This was the example given by Gilson. And the idea of Gilson is that there are questions which were for the first time asked from outside, so to speak, the experience which philosophers and philosophy could have. Those questions were unasked before the self-manifestation of God. But those questions being asked, say, by the Bible, prove nevertheless to mean something and to be, uh, uh, to, re to, 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 to claim a rational discussion. Another case is the question of the immortality of soul. The immortality of soul, uh, uh, to some extent, became a very serious question because of Christian revelation, or Jewish revelation, because it is an issue for Jewish uh, religion as well. And you can argue in a rational way about the status and the possible immortality of the soul. This is a philosophical question, but it is not a question initiated by philosophy. This was the way for Gilson, which is the last one to have claimed uh, 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 the very notion of Christian philosophy, his way to explain what a Christian philosophy is. But here, there is an objection, and a very strong objection, which was in fact made by Henri de Lubac uh, in his book uh, Le Drame de l'Athéisme Athée, but in, in many other texts. The argument of Delubac is this, to say that if a philosophy becomes Christian because it has to address some questions which philosophy could not discover by itself, but that philosophy has to deal with uh, after the question was raised by the Christian faith. In that case, the death of God is precisely 
a question for a philosophy, or for philosophy, which would make no sense without Christian revelation. Because the death of God is a part of the revelation of the self-manifestation of God in the New Testament. That is to say, any philosophy of the death of God is a Christian philosophy according to the definition of Gilson. And uh, you could say the same for most of the philosophy opposing some uh, 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 dogma of Christianity. Because the dogma of Christianity may appear as a question raised from the outside of philosophy into philosophy. And to some extent, there is no philosopher, including atheist and anti-Christian philosopher, which don't uh, uh, achieve a Christian philosophy if we stick to the definition of Christian philosophy given by Gilson. So, the difficulty at that moment is that the Christian philosophy may be a, a way to interpret in a non-Christian way some dogma or question which came into rational discussion through Christian revelation. That is, atheism is indeed only possible through the assumption of the self-manifestation of God, strictly speaking. So, uh, the definition given by Gilson is too broad and wide to be convincing. And the difficulty at that moment is that the what remains Christian in a Christian philosophy would be a Christian interpretation of a question which may be interpreted in the other way by other philosophers. So what we reach is more a conflict of interpretation of religious and Christian issues than a genuine Christian philosophy. And this can lead very, uh, very far uh, to uh, what remains for us spontaneously the uh, theme of a Christian philosophy. That is the identification of the question of being with the question of God. God is the first being, or the, is the actus essendi. God is what is. And uh, uh, if you deny the existence of God, you deny being itself. You cannot deny being itself, so you cannot deny the existence of God. And if you are really a nihilist denying being, that's the price to pay to deny the existence of God. We know the conflict, this discussion by art. But this discussion is made possible only because we connect and we identify the question of God and the question of being.
The problem being that how far are we allowed to identify both of them? Because the revelation of God uh, in the New Testament is revelation in the Old Testament as well, is a revelation of God as love. And that the word and ourselves, we were loved before being. <laughs> That's the meaning of creation. It was, we were loved and then we were uh, 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 introduced into being, which is the result, not the condition. So, this simple fact <coughs> to think that any Christian philosophy should rest on the identification of God and being may at least be questioned. So this is the first, in fact, in the modern way to understand Christian philosophy. But there is other paradoxes about Christian philosophy because there is other historical meaning of Christian philosophy. There is one which is uh, uh, to some extent uh, completely forgotten but was very powerful. It was in uh, the period of Renaissance uh, when, for the first time, was framed, uh, it was a moment when the Eastern churches collapsing with the fall of Byzance, uh, uh, all the manuscripts from the East came to Rome and uh, that there was a new another rediscovery of Plato, Aristotle, and the former tradition, the earlier tradition. And there was, during one generation, many attempts by uh, many uh, people who were both uh, humanist, uh, perhaps skeptics, very often cardinals, uh, uh, to uh, consider that there was an agreement between the uh, first Greek thinker, earlier than Socrates, and Christianity. And the idea, uh, 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 they had the idea of Perenis Philosophia, an eternal philosophy. And there is a, a, a masterpiece of that tradition, uh, uh, the three trees on the eternal philosophy, De Perini Philosophia, uh, which was uh, written by uh, a former bishop of, uh, in Creta, Creta, you say, in Creta, uh, Stukos, and there is a copy of this book in, in the reg, and uh, where he explains that uh, creation was already in Aristotle, Trinity, in Hermes, Trismegistos, etc. All the Christian dogma were already known implicitly by uh, the first pagan philosopher. And there, there was a universal agreement, and this is the truth of Christianity. Uh, this understanding of the eternal philosophy uh, has kept some authority and and uh, uh, it is 
at least a nostalgia for uh, philosophers and Christian philosophers. That in fact, revelation has revealed something which was already there in pagan thought. And we all uh, hope that at the end there will be a Perenis philosophia, the true one, beyond any mode, any, uh, any fashion, any uh, evolution, evolution of thought. At the end of the story there will be the true Perenis philosophia. The difficulty in that case to say, well, the Perenis philosophia, even if it is only a dream, is the formal truth of a Christian philosophy. When you say this, there is two uh, uh, arguments uh, against this uh, hypothesis. The first is that the eternal philosophy has an history and is not eternal. It was published in Lyon uh, uh, 15 1540, 1541, no, 1540 in Lyon, uh, because Turcos was uh, uh, ended up in, in uh, being a, a member of uh, the Council of Trento. First, he was a very learned and uh, uh, respectable man. <coughs> Nevertheless, there is an historical moment of the eternal philosophy. It's why the eternal philosophy is not eternal. It is itself a part of the evolution of philosophy. The second point is that in any attempt of the eternal philosophy, and this may be said about the only historical uh, uh, quasi-achievement of the eternal philosophy, which is ego. This achievement of Christian thought, that is, revelation of God, has already established, implicitly at least, in any true philosophy ever. This leads to the uh, uh, abolition of the fact of, of revelation itself. That is, at the end, revelation as an act of God becomes useless and provisory, uh, needed for a moment, but with a content and a, a result which is not directly connected to the fact of that revelation. That is to say, revelation appears in that case only as one of the means, provisory, uh, with no special uh, dignity, uh, speculative dignity, of uh, the uh, display of informations which could have been, and were in fact, known without revelation. <coughs> That is, the paradox of any attempt of Perenis philosophia is to nullify the fact of revelation as a manifestation of God. And so the concept uh, takes over 
the content slightly irrational of Revelation without the story of Revelation itself, which appears as uh, a play where God has played a character, but which is not the real plot of reason itself. So, uh, this leads to what remains a, a, a temptation for Christian thought, one of the most powerful, which is Gnosticism. Revelation is in fact about knowing something. And the way according to which you know has no importance regarding what you have to know. So, in that case, it is very difficult for us to avoid the temptation of Gnosticism. Let us consider the last uh, possible uh, understanding of Christian revelation, of uh, Christian philosophy, which is perhaps the, uh, the, the most convincing. It is to consider Christian philosophy as it was seen at the very beginning and as uh, some, someone like Pierre Aldo has told us very recently that we may understand philosophy. Philosophy as spiritual exercise. Philosophy is not about knowing, it's about improving the humanity in us to reach some wisdom. Knowledge being only one of the means to reach that wisdom. This fits exactly with the interpretation of Christian philosophy as a monastic life. Because Christian philosophy in the second century and after that with the foundation of monasticism uh, was understood as to live like a monk. Right, to live without any commitment to uh, uh, the rules of life within the world, with uh, living without uh, uh, power, without uh, 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 generation, and uh, uh, without uh, possession. And this was the Philosophia Christiana. This understanding of Philosophia Christiana is very much alive in uh, the uh, medieval monasticism by Bernard and the others. And it, it is still, uh, uh, this formulation is still used by Erasmus. So, and this is in, in the, on, on, on line with the understanding of philosophy as spiritual exercise. So we could say that after all Christian philosophy is precisely this, monasticism, spiritual life, renunciation to the world, and this is correct. But you see, in that case, Christian philosophy is precisely what should uh, 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 fight against a philosophy 
made by Christian within the university. Because the university, where the moment of the translatio studorum, not from one side of the Seine to the other side of the Seine, but from the monastery to the university. And what we call theology now is theology as a science framed within the university, or more precisely, the university was framed uh, around theology, so theology is a way to know. And when we speak of philosophia christiana, we speak of a science, philosophia, which may have a special connection with Christianity. It's clear that this understanding of philosophia christiana contradicts completely the monastic understanding of philosophia christiana. It is either or. It cannot be the same. So if you understand According to a very long and noble tradition, philosophy uh, Christiana as monasticism, spiritual exercise, and things like that, you cannot do that and keep the uh, the scientific meaning of philosophy Christian of philosophy Christiana. So this other understanding interpretation of philosophy Christiana remain deeply inconsistent with the previous. But in fact, the question of philosophy and Christianity was asked very soon, earlier even than the philosophy Christiana. We are going back in this story. I started with Gilson, uh, 1930, then back to uh, uh, eternal philosophy, to monastic philosophy, so to speak. But there is a first meaning, which is, I think now, uh, the real question, the correct way to ask the question. And this argument, to oversimplify, and uh, time is running, so I have to... Uh, uh, this way of uh, 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 constructing the question can be uh, found in some uh, famous author. Let us focus on two of them, Augustine and uh, Justin. Augustine, this is in uh, City of God, uh, book six and eight, mostly discuss the question of uh, what is philosophy? Answer, philosophy is uh, the love of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is God. And more precisely, it is Christ. So the real philosopher is the one who loves wisdom, and wisdom incarnate, that is Christ. So, loving Christ, that is do, this is doing philosophy. This is the reason why, he said, we are the true philosopher. We, the Christian, are the true philosopher. Same argument uh, three uh, centuries earlier by Justin in Palestine, arguing in his uh, uh, legatio, which is a... Uh, 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 discourse to the emperor 
to make the eulogy of the Christians. Uh, we were under, under prosecution at that moment. His argument is to say, we Christians, we pray a God who claim the title of Logos. But you, the Greeks, the Romans, but the Greeks, you are doing exactly the same thing when you do philosophy, because philosophy is about the Logos. So, what the philosophers are for the Greeks, we, the Christians, are for the barbarians, the barbaroi, for the non-Greeks. We are the real philosophers because we are committed to the Logos. And so, what we share in common with you, the Greeks, it is the reason why you should not prosecute us, is that we are rational. And uh, uh, Augustine argued the same way because he said that there is three theology among the Romans. The political theology, that is the theology of the official cult uh, given to the emperor on the, on the temple in Rome, which is just uh, politics, nothing. You have the uh, theology of the poets, which has the, the plays about the gods which end up into uh, stupid uh, uh, shows as, uh, as in, on TV where you can laugh of everything and, and <coughs> uh, make uh, ridiculous the gods. This is not rational. The only rational theology is the natural theology, that is the, the motion of the, uh, of the planets and the, uh, the sun and things like that. This is rational. And we, Christians, are theologians and we can discuss only with astronomy, which is at least rational. It is a, a low and material understanding of the divine, but at least it is rational. It is mathematics. That is for us. We, the Christian, we are rational. The question is, indeed, what kind of rationality is assumed in this understanding of the rationality of Christian faith. That is, <clears throat> if there is a Christian philosophy, it would be because Christian faith as such is rational. We can say that. If we mean only that dogma are consistent, that there is a logic ordering everything in the Christian creed and mostly in the Catholic dogmatic system. Is that enough to claim to be rational uh, uh, on a larger, broader scale? What does that mean to be rational? What is this common between the rationality of our word, of any university, which is mostly technology, and the rationality of the face, of the Christian face. That's the point. So, indeed, I would prefer to assume the last position, 
that is that of Augustine and, and Justin, to say there is something like a Christian philosophy because the faith as such is rational. But the difficulty is now to understand what we mean about that kind of rationality. And the question now is about the meaning of rationality. So, and this will be my last point. <coughs> the question, the real, uh, the real uh, and the serious issue in the very traditional, formal, and time to time uh, empty uh, question of is there a Christian philosophy lies in this. What do we mean by reason, by logic, by logos? <clears throat> what I would suggest, and it is only a suggestion because there is n I have no simple view of an answer to the question, would be this. The rationality of revelation, if any, uh, is the rationality of God. By definition, we cannot imagine that we could have access to the entirety of that rationality. We have two ways to understand this rationality of the self-manifestation of, self of God. Two ways. One, by faith. By faith, that means that we are ready to try to understand things as God does. And as it is not possible, we have always to modify our point of view, to shift from a place to another and to see the real world, I mean the world seen and created by God, to see the real world close to the point of view of God. This is an endless journey and this is a journey of faith. So there is a rationality in spiritual life. This is indeed not what people uh, keep in mind when they speak of Christian philosophy. They speak, they, they mean a philosophy which anyone could have access to, to some extent. So there is another way to uh, consider rationality, which is, so to speak, the moment when what is revealed by God, which is real because it is in the word, which is the life uh, of human beings, when they live according to the three theological uh, virtues, faith, uh, hope, and charity. And this is real in the real world. And when you live 
according to those virtues, there is a kind of reality which becomes visible, which is the reality of, uh, uh, of love, hatred as well, of uh, uh, everything connected to the life of love in the world. But this reality can be seen even by those who are not believers. At that moment, we could imagine that there may be a kind of discourse of speech, of hermeneutics, whatever you may call it, which could make visible this reality. By this reality, I mean all the uh, phenomena which classical and modern philosophy have just uh, ignored. And we can make the list of it. For instance, the question of the alterity of the other, the access of the alterity of the other. This was completely overlooked by uh, modern philosophy for a very simple reason. Our rationality, according to modern philosophy, leads to identify what can be known with an object. And what cannot be reduced to an object becomes, in that case, completely invisible. The alterity of the other, by definition, cannot become an object, because if there is an object, it is not another. It is not another eye. It's just an object for the eye. So the access to the phenomenon of the other implies that I don't consider the other as an object, which means that I love the other in a way or another. In that case, love becomes the condition of visibility of the phenomenon. This is the case for Christian philosophy or Jewish philosophy, whatever. Say, take another example of something which cannot become visible as an object and nevertheless always happens to us. It is the case of the event the historical event, the collective event, or the historical private event. The event, which is the most real moment in our life, because he will reinterpret what was before and what will follow. So it is the place of the decision, decision taken by me or not taken by me, imposed to me, the event. Our life is made by events. The event, by definition, is not an object. By definition. Cannot be repeated, cannot be measured, cannot be predicted, and so on. It is not an object. How could we admit the, the event? The same thing as the alterity of the other is accessible only with the virtue of charity. <laughs> the 
phenomenon of the object is a question of hope. <laughs> hope is a phenomenological condition to have access to the object, to the event. Let us take another example, which is the case of the gift. Gift which is uh, now an open field for, for philosophy, postmodern philosophy, as people say, <coughs> discussion about the gift. What is particular in the gift? The gift, which after all is the exact counterpart of what should be according to the standards of official thinking, uh, the real world, that is economy. The, ec the economy is a logic where there is no gift. Everything has a price, can be exchanged, and so on. So this is economy, global economy. And the real world is not that of economy. It is the economy with its double, the invisible double, which is the gift. And uh, the real world should be described by the competition of the logic of the gift with the logic of the economy. And uh, see around you, it's all about that. So the question is whether there is a most important part of reality which is governed by the gift or by the exchange. And the destiny of the world is just about that. The financial crisis is a very good example of this kind of question. Let us see what is the gift, what is proper to the gift, and make the gift invisible after all. Is that the gift has no price? It is not an exchange. You don't pay and you, you are not paid. It has no price, and the price, the interest, greed, is the name in economy for the sufficient cause. The sufficient cause of the exchange is the price, the value. So the gift has no cause. The gift is not submitted to the principle of sufficient reason. The relation between the parents and the children is priceless like uh, the advertisement for uh, Visa or <laughs> MasterCard. <laughs> there are things which are priceless. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Good theology. <coughs> <laughs> Not willingly, but good theology nevertheless. <coughs> so, uh, the gift being free from the principle of sufficient reason is never impossible because he has no condition of possibility. So the gift can never become impossible. The consequence is that the gift as the is almighty. The gift can always be performed. So I've studied that in the way stop with it. And the gift is visible only if you don't consider that the object of the exchange is the only real uh, part of the world. So when can you see the gift? According to the virtue of charity. 
let us take those three examples of a part of the real world which cannot appear as a phenomenon, I would say a regular daily life phenomenon with its logic uh, very well known. Nevertheless, it cannot appear if not exposed to a certain special light, as there are in, la in labs, special lights making phenomena appear, phenomena in physics, very real phenomena, which cannot appear in the uh, usual light, so you have uh, some special light, suddenly you see the things which were there. So you have just to shift from one light to, to the other. There is perhaps something like that in our issue. That is, we could see the world another way, shifting from one light to the other. In that case, this would be a matter of philosophy, because you can describe very precisely what a gift is, what an event is, uh, what, uh, uh, what was the third? Oui, the other is, they are not objects, they should be described in another way, with another light. They are a part of the world. They may be more real than the rest of the world, which are only objects constructed by us. They are not constructed by us, they are not objects. So they are perhaps more real than the, the usual world. But this real world can appear only if he shed on it another light. And that light is not a natural light. It is perhaps on that uh, special field that there is room left for a philosophy which is not the common philosophy, which remains philosophical, with other a priori, which is the other light. In that case, uh, there is perhaps a room, a window, as they say, open for uh, a philosophy which is not the neutral one. I would not assume that it is only the Christian philosophy, but there is something where Christianity plays a special role, specific role, in philosophy. We are not in theology in that case. There is no need, to some extent, to be a Christian or a, a theologian to, to do that. And perhaps theologians are not very or more qualified to make those descriptions. It's enough to have philosophers. And you can use the uh, axiomatic and sophistication, conceptual sophistication of, of phenomenology, for instance, to make those descriptions. So you, you are still a philosopher, but with under another light. This could be a new uh, figure of, was, what, of what was aimed at under the name, uh, to my uh, mind, not really convincing of Christian philosophy. And in that case, uh, we should pay attention to, uh, this will be my final uh, quotation, to this uh, 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 
implicit phenomenality which uh, 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 shows up very often in, in the scripture. Um, first episode of John, chapter 3, verse 2. Nun teu esmen, kai opu efanerote ti esometa. We are uh, now, uh, noon means both now and uh, for real. We are truly now uh, the Son of God. But what we are uh, does not appear yet. Now, not yet. Not yet. This is the situation. That is, we are in a situation where the real, a part of the real world is not yet manifested. And to make this manifest is a part of the Christian life. We, have, we are here to make visible what is already there, but not yet visible. And uh, I discovered uh, uh, something fascinating for, for, for uh, a scholar in phenomenology. <coughs> You know, the principle of phenomenology, we have to go back to the things themselves, and according to Husserl, the very famous principle or false principle is this. Um, we shall not be deceived by any uh, theory if we admit that what shows itself in the intuition should be de jure, according to a right, be admitted as what it shows itself to be. That is, when you have an appearance, you have to take into account this appearance. There is something real in any appearance. You cannot deny, by principle, some appearance as mere illusion. There is no illusion. The illusion is just an appearance which was badly and wrongly interpreted. But there is no illusion. The illusion itself is always real. It is a way we interpret this degree of reality which may deceive us, but there is no illusion. The appearance has to be correctly interpreted, and to do so, it has to be admitted first. And in uh, the Gospels, not in John, in the Synoptics, there is three times the, the same uh, uh, formulation. I quote uh, Matthew 10, 26. Uden garestin kekatalumenon o uk apokalupstesetai. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. And kai Krypton o u gnoste tesetai, and nothing hidden that shall not be known. This is pure phenomenology. <laughs> that is, there is nothing which will not be revealed, with the double meaning of revealed here, uh, seen from the point of view of revelation, Christian revelation, but revealed. Uh, in uh, the most 
common meaning, that is, made manifest, made visible. And perhaps uh, the, 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 the goal and the, the strength of that kind of philosophy would be to make visible what remains with other philosophy, with uh, narrow rationality of the objectivity, concealed, but should be uh, made manifest. So this could be a way to make sense with this very puzzling and unstable notion of Christian philosophy. Thank you for your patience. Thank you.